0: And I eventually went to a doctor and was like, "Look, i'm I'm having some fairly dark thoughts, and i I, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. Um, and I don't know if the medication is helping anymore." And he said, well, uh, let's let's try something different. let's let's try mindfulness and meditation. and and I, I laughed at him at first. He started uh, showing me some very high performing individuals that practice it and the benefits that you get from practicing it.
1: Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. When we think of a mindfulness or meditation practitioner, we may often think of a monk remote in the wilderness or perhaps modern-day hippie sitting in an ashram but rarely do we picture a former U.S. Navy SEAL commander. Well, this brings us to our next guest. John MacAskill is a retired Navy SEAL commander turned consultant and mindfulness and meditation teacher. Originally born in South Africa, he grew up in the south in Louisiana. When John was first introduced to mindfulness, he'll be the first to say that he was a bit hesitant. However, after his therapist showed him scientific studies behind the benefits of mindfulness and meditation, he was convinced it was worth a shot. After a very short period of practicing, he noticed significant changes in his mood, how he communicated with others, and how he experienced life. One significant difference he noticed was in the way he approached his nighttime feedings with his infant daughter, he was usually quite annoyed, very tired, but agitated, but he became much more patient, and stable, and really started to enjoy these intimate moments. It was this experience that ultimately showed him the true value of meditation and mindfulness. Now, John currently runs a podcast called Men Talking Mindfulness. Him and his co-hosts are a world apart, but what unites them is their passion and love for meditation. He does keynote speaking engagements on developing leadership, grit and resilience and owns his own consulting company, Macasil Consulting. And in all three roles, his desire is to improve cultures and individuals through mindfulness, meditation, vulnerability and compassion. This isn't something that you think a retired Navy SEAL commander would be teaching It's quite remarkable. After graduating high school, he served briefly as an enlisted sailor in the U.S. Navy before receiving an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy and graduating from there with a B.S. in mathematics four years later. John has served in Iraq, Afghanistan, off the coast of Somalia, and in Panama. After retiring, he briefly served as deputy executive director for the veteran non-for-profit Veterans Path, where he helped veterans that were dealing with stress, trauma, effectively people that were looking to transition into civilian life. It's a remarkable conversation. I've come to know John through a group of mutual friends with mutual interests. He's a remarkable person. He really breaks the stereotypes in regards to who we think would embrace meditation. He really is passionate about the effects and Almost immediately after starting, he realized it was something that he would want to pay forward to the greater world, and he is doing it with full passion and intention. Hope you enjoy this episode, folks. John is engaging. He's really likable, quite warm. You kind of wonder what he would have been like as a soldier on the battlefield. No doubt he would have been fierce. Enjoy the conversation as always. Please do leave us a review, rate this podcast, follow us on social media, Ultra Habits. Go to the website, www.ultrahabits.co, and let us know what you think. Anyways, folks, peace out. I leave you in capable hands, John. John, welcome to the Ultra Habits podcast. We are joining each other from around the globe, and I'm super stoked to have you on the show today, man. Welcome.
0: Uh, I'm excited to be here, RJ. Uh, It's been a long time coming. So we've had this on the calendar for a while. And even prior to that, we were going back and forth as to when it was going to happen. So very excited to finally make it happen.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. I think you're a really interesting character. Uh, You hold uh, different experiences, you know, from the mindfulness piece to being a Navy SEAL. And a lot of people would think, you know, the two kind of uh, approaches are different and difficult to hold at the same time. And, you know, I wanted to get you on the show to talk about how you're able to kind of hold these different positions, um, you know, while you're you're traveling through life, because I know it's relevant for our audience. So we'll jump into your story now, and obviously we're gonna jump into the mindfulness piece and everything that you're about. Tell us, John. Where are you from? What's your backstory, man?
0: I was uh, I was born in South Africa, so uh, you know there might be a good portion of your audience there in, in Australia that that may may be from South Africa. But I was born in Cape Town uh, and moved to Johannesburg when uh, I think I was three or four, and then moved from Johannesburg to Louisiana uh, uh, in in the states when I was seven. And Started, uh, started school in South Africa, came over to the States and uh, got thrown into second grade here in, uh, in the States. Ended up realizing that I was in over my head and got rolled back to first grade. I say rolled back because that's a military term and we'll get into that. Uh, but yeah, I got rolled back to first grade and basically went through the, the US schooling system from first grade all the way through. Then uh, enlisted in the Navy out of high school, and went uh, and became a parachute rigger for the Navy and a parachute rigger in the Navy is a little bit different uh, for your audience than the parachute rigger in some of the other services where we we sure we do rig parachutes for those who jump out of aircraft, but our primary mission as a parachute rigger in the enlisted force for the Navy is actually to work on the parachutes for ejection seats. So the the F-18s, uh, some, back then the F-14s, um, that's what I worked on—the ejection seats and all the survival equipment that's packed in there with the the parachutes. And then I got picked up from the enlisted ranks to to go into the Naval Academy. Uh, graduated four years later with a degree in mathematics, and went out to SEAL training in, in Coronado, California. Became a became a Navy SEAL, and then uh, just retired uh, in 2020. I, I keep saying the last year, but it, we're 2022 now, so now I've got to actually say which year it was. So in August of 2020. I retired and now I live out in Colorado Springs with my beautiful bride and three young children on a small farm. And and like you mentioned, I, I teach mindfulness and meditation.
1: Yeah. And, and there's a lot in your story and we're going to unpack uh, all of it today. What I wanted to ask you though, because we're always interested in the beginnings of our, our guest, when you guys as a family migrated from South Africa to Louisiana was that a massive kind of culture shock for the family like what was the adaptation process like
0: yeah i mean granted i was 7 years old but i've got three older sisters and a younger brother we're a fairly large family and uh you know now uh, as a as a I guess an older father, but with young kids, I look back and and have the utmost respect and just awe for what my parents did. But at the time, so this is 1984, when we moved to the States, apartheid was still a big thing in South Africa. So when I went to school, I went to school with white kids Mm. and that was it. Um, And granted, again, I was only there for a year, but my three older sisters, they they had gone through more of the school in in south africa than we moved to the states and it's just a melting pot of different cultures diff- different ethnicities different backgrounds and we got put into that and i you know i, I was still young i don't remember my parents saying hey you you're, you're going to be going to school with a whole bunch of different people from different backgrounds but i was very thankful that they didn't, because I think if they they had, I, I probably would have had something in my mind. But I just walked into class, and we had people from every walk of life. And again, this was first or second grade. But I, my sisters walked in, and we we took it uh, in stride, and we, we were like, "Oh, well, this is new." And, be, I, I think we're actually more open to becoming friends with those of different cultures, different backgrounds than some of the other kids. Um, so you know, I've got I've got friends from all again all walks of life now, from when I was young, but also from my time in the military. But I think that was a big part of the quote unquote culture shock. But we actually I think embraced it. We I think we really liked it. Um, that was that was a piece. Uh, obviously, we had a South African accent. And then moving to the south of, of uh, America, the south south uh, in Louisiana, the Louisiana accent doesn't sound a whole lot like the South African accent, <laughs> as you can imagine. And uh, as a young kid, we were made fun of, uh, made fun of quite a bit. And the the kids on the other side, uh, they didn't understand where South Africa was. They thought it was South America. And they, uh, when when they did realize that it was part of Africa, their perception in their minds was everyone in Africa was black, and that and they and they said, "Oh well, did you live in a hut? And did you throw spears? And did you carry around?" It was, you know, young kids. They're they're mean and naive. So that part I think was more of the culture shock. Like, what have we done here? What did my parents do bringing us here? But uh, we adjusted and and we tried to use it as, as best as we could, as a platform to educate those that were that we were going to school with. So, uh, yeah, there was uh there was definitely culture shock in different ways, good and bad.
1: I think it would be really interesting, and I I'm just wondering if you've ever had this conversation with your parents, like coming from apartheid South Africa to the deep South where they're was obviously remnants of the civil rights movement. Like that would have been crazy for your parents, I think, because they're coming from an environment which is outright segregated into an environment which is recently integrated. Like that would have been kind of mind blowing, I think. And also I think for you is a, like a, a, a white family from Africa, there would be probably a unique r- relatability to the African Americans. Like the, in certain ways, I think they would have found that pretty
0: cool. Right, right. No, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, going through school, uh, a lot of my African American friends said, "Hey, you're you're an African American and <laughs> you're white." Right, right. And you know, there were there were some that even tried to convince me when I was applying for different colleges, they said, well, why don't you mark African-American on there? (laughs) Well, uh, I think in this particular context, it's not, it's not right. So we didn't, I didn't do that, but, but yeah, I mean the, for my parents, I still, uh, I still wonder how they did it. I mean, they've, they've kind of uh, become part of the culture there and and the culture has changed. I mean, here we are 30 plus years later or 37 years later. And, and, um, you know that the culture in Louisiana has changed. There's still remnants of uh, racism. There's still remnants of of uh, I won't say segregation, but there's still re- remnants of uh, small-mindedness. I guess narrow-mindedness is a way of saying it. Uh, and I don't. I certainly don't mean that about everyone. Not at all. I mean, I love many of the people that I grew up with in Louisiana, but there's there are uh, aspects of that still that remain. Um. And uh, I always talk to my parents. I'm like, why did you choose Louisiana? Uh, you know, Back in the, the early 80s where, where, like you said, we we're just what, 15 years from the civil rights, R- rights movement and things were still moving slowly in, in Louisiana. Why did you choose Louisiana? And they're like, well, we didn't really have a choice. We, we got a visa. My father got a visa to teach at Louisiana Tech University. Uh, it was supposed to be a one-year visa. Ended up renewing that at the end of one year, ended up getting green cards and eventually became citizens. But yeah, you know, there, there's definitely places uh, elsewhere in the United States where their mindset and their mentality and the way the culture was in South Africa versus the culture that they wanted to be a part of, they would have been a better fit but louisiana is uh is where they they chose, and that's where they still are today and and the culture has has changed fairly significantly um but again there's still remnants that uh that I think need to change
1: no that's uh it's interesting so you move into um high school and ultimately you go into the navy as you said earlier one of the things that I found really interesting john is How long your career in the the Navy was. I think it was 24 years, I think 18 years as a SEAL. You were on combat missions, I think about seven times. And I also read how, you know, especially when you got into the mindfulness piece, you realized a lot of what you were taught as a soldier was kind of in conflict of where and how you wanted to live your life. So how did you end up staying and why did you end up staying so long in the Navy? Was was it like an intended you were going to be a lifer? Like what was that whole journey like?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's definitely pieces to the the military lifestyle that I I I loved. Uh quite honestly, I I loved the discipline. I loved the effort that most people put into their work. I love the heart of service that most people that that inspired most people to join, um, and 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 stay in, and that's what I felt that I had was that heart of service to to serve my country, to be a patriot, to uh, keep others free, um, and, and honestly, at least ideally, serve the greater good. And I mean, I know there's times that the greater good is is in question, but um, uh, I, I stayed in for those reasons. The things where I had conflict, um, I think there were some moral decisions that you have to make on and off the battlefield that I didn't necessarily agree with, both in the decisions that other people made and the decisions that I uh, had my hand kind of forced to make at times. Um, and, and that that was definitely something that was hard to reconcile with. Um, but I think the the desire to serve the greater good Was what kept me in. Um, And then, you know, I I retired um, basically the, the, the first time I was given the opportunity. Uh, so my 24 years encompassed a year enlisted time, four years at the Naval Academy, and then another 19 plus years just after that. So as far as the Navy is concerned, I, I served 20 years in one day. And as far as I'm concerned, because the Naval Academy is still a mil- military institution, I, I count myself as having served 24 years. But uh, I, I got out as, as soon as I could. Again, not because I was anti-military, but just uh, I felt that there was a new... New calling for me, and that had to do with serving in another capacity. And that is the, the mindfulness side of things. The, the military mindset as far as work ethic, as far as pushing yourself past your perceived limits, that I think is something that many people need to learn. And I learned it, I learned it early on in, in life, but then I think it was further honed. In the military, I ran track and cross country, uh, you know, as a young man, and my uh, my coach instilled a, a tremendous work ethic in me, and then putting up with pain and pushing through uh, discomfort. Uh, that that was a piece that he trained me to do, and and that one I reap the benefits of that later in the military. But two, that desire and that mindset was further honed in the military, and that that pays pays dividends now to this day. So. Yeah, there's, there's definitely pluses and minuses to the military mindset.
1: One of the things I've
0: started to realize
1: more uh, about people within the military, because I've never been in the military, but as you know, we're, I'm increasingly getting to know more of your folk. I'm, you know, We're now in these groups. And one of the things that I'm realizing is that, well, my perception is, is that a lot of people in the military, especially in the elite, divisions are almost like athletes. And they're not necessarily too political. I've always wanted to ask someone that's in the military, like how political is it with your team members when shit's going on in the media? Is, does it become about the team and you guys keep that stuff out? Are there arguments about left and right and center? Like, is that even more complex today because of the polarized way? That shit's going down, especially in the US. Like, or is it everyone's just about high performance and there's more of an athlete's mindset? Can you shine some light on that? Because I've been dying to know what the go is.
0: Great there. question. I've never been asked that. And a fantastic question, RJ. And and I will tell you that um, you know, um what, 12 years ago now? Uh I, I think that's kind of where the the US really started getting more polarized. And and then really, really four years ago, even got more intense, to the point where we were this time last year. Um, when I when I first was in the SEAL teams, it was all about the mission. We rarely discussed politics. Uh, maybe when it was leading up to the presidential election, we may have touched on it. And then if there was a disagreement, we we came to a point where like, hey. I I love you as a brother, uh, but I don't necessarily agree with your your politics, and we'll just leave it at that. Um, I got out before the the election of 2020, um, but I saw how politics was more of a, a topic of discussion and and a topic of disagreement. And I think as the as the country uh, unfortunately has gotten more polarized that topic has come into into the military uh quite often but i will say even with that topic and as heated as some of the conversations uh started to get there was still the underlying understanding that hey when the shit hits the fan we're going to war as a team and we're brothers um now since since i left and there's uh, polarization on on vaccinations, polarizations on masks, and I won't you know I won't get too far into detail on on my particular views on those, but I will say that um, the the SEAL teams have been in the news for uh, not wanting to get vaccinated, and and because they want didn't want to get vaccinated because their own views, their own. Uh, thoughts on what may happen to their bodies or their own religious views, they have been uh, separated from the military. Uh, the military put down a, a, a law. It's like, finally, in the Navy It's like, hey, this is the policy. If you don't adhere to this policy, you're getting out. Whether you have you know, three years in or whether you have 23 years in, you're getting out. Um, and that was, uh, even though I was outside of the military, I could still pick it up from social media threads and some of my friends that I still could stay in contact with via text and email and everything else. Um, that is a point of contention. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's just the way of the world. We definitely have things that are, uh, that are polarizing, and I can honestly say that I I, ha, I understand the concerns and thoughts on both sides of, of most coins. Uh, I try, and that's you know that's where I think the mindfulness comes into play. Is I don't automatically assume that somebody that's disagreeing with me is is my enemy. I say, although well, I, I try to understand where it is they're coming from because their their lifestyle, their upbringing, their uh, current life that they're living has built up their their opinions and their thoughts, and uh, you know if we constantly think that those who disagree with us or don't see eye to eye with us on everything are our enemy, then eventually we are at some point, even within the military, going to come to to blows, come to to odds with one another. So we just have to have that compassion for the other other human being, understand what their Upbringing was, what their conditions were, what their thoughts are now that have guided their their emotions and their actions.
1: well said, John. I, mean, I reflect on Alcoholics Anonymous, which I'm a part of, and we're probably the most disorganized, organized organization run by a bunch of like totally like out there people. But one of the things that keeps us going is we're united by a life and death cause that is and surpasses any agendas outside of AA. So, you know, in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, a, a, a right-wing dude will be helping a left-wing dude and that shit will never get brought into the meeting because there's a higher calling. And I think to your point, I think with the military, especially as an elite team out there in combat, you've got a higher point of unification. And I think all that shit goes. Uh, There will be a tipping point, though. And what you don't want in an elite team is doubt or resentment pouring into those relationships where you're dependent on each other. You know, but at the same time, you're looking at each other like. So I think it's interesting. And I wanted to ask someone that question for a long time. So thanks for that answer. If we could talk talk a little bit about the military career, particularly about being a SEAL, we know that, you know, the success rate isn't high. When you reflect on your time as a SEAL and just being around SEALs, could you pick who or what type of person would make it as a SEAL, would make it through training and reflecting on your time? Like, what are the characteristics of the people that are successful in becoming a seal versus the people that just don't make it?
0: Yeah, there's, there've been many studies done on what type of person, what type of mentality uh, makes it through training and what doesn't, uh, or what type of mindset doesn't there. I think what, what we can do is look at a training class and identify with a fairly high success rate those who will not make it. Um, so uh, you know maybe those who are not in in decent physical shape um, and maybe carry themselves a certain way uh, don't don't display any type of grit, uh, you know show a lot of fear those I, I think that stands out pretty quickly. those who will not make it, and the instructors typically will see that and prey on it. And uh, those, those folks, are, again, are they're, they're gone pretty quickly. Uh, again, with, I, I don't know, there's uh, maybe 75% chance of being like, okay, you, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. The, the inverse, however, is not true. Uh, you cannot look at a class and say, this person is going to make it. Um, there are incredible athletes, Olympic athletes that try to become seals and for one reason or another, don't make it some, uh, you know, really good swimmers, some really good water polo players, some really good ice hockey, football players, whatever, you name it, they're really good athletes, and they don't make it. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with one, some of them show up with zero body fat I mean they're just incredible athletes and and having zero body fat when you're when you're gonna get cold uh, is not a great plan. I actually when I graduated the Naval Academy uh, I intended to put on some body fat so I intentionally ate uh, you know fatty food, putting on body fat so that it would keep me a little bit warmer in the water um, but that's that's fairly anecdotal as far as, what i personally saw to be the difference in those who made it versus those who didn't and i don't i don't think that those who don't make it through training are lesser human beings not not anything of the sort i think that you know there's some who make it some who don't but the the mindset difference that i personally saw was the ability to eat the elephant one bite at a time. And what I mean by that is a lot of the time, if if we looked at the entire six months of training, BUDS, basic underwater demolition and seal training, if you look at that entire six months at one, one sitting, you're like, that is a lot. There's no way I'm gonna make it from day one until six months from now and graduate. Whereas the, the those who make it, both have the ability to say, "Okay, I'm going to break this six months down into three phases because that's what it is. It's divided into three phases. First phase being kind of the the weeding out session. Second phase being diving phase. Third phase being land warfare where you do a lot of the demolition, some of the uh, the land navigation, some of the shooting, those types of things. So you're able to divide it into three phases, and then." Further break each one of those phases down into weeks, then break each one of those down into days, and then literally break it down into each uh, training evolution. And what I personally did was break it down into: I, I need to make it from breakfast to lunch, and then from you know from lunch to dinner, and then from dinner to the middle middle of the night meal. So one, you have the ability to, to break it down from this giant six month elephant into smaller bite-sized chunks and you're able to eat those at one bite at a time that's why i said that you eat the elephant one bite at a time and then two you're able to see what the ultimate goal is the you know you're not you didn't show up to you didn't show up to show up to seal training that wasn't your goal your goal was not to show up and get into seal training your goal was to become a seal that is the goal and if you can see that at the same time as being able to break down the six month block of training into hourly chunks or even smaller than that if needed, those are the ones who make it. Uh, Those who come in and get overwhelmed by the length, those who come in and they just wanna tell people that they showed up to buds, those guys don't make it. That's the difference.
1: The unique ability to be in the now but hold the view of the future at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. You hit it and nailed it. Like, how do you think people evolve and develop that? Hey, guys, just wanted to quickly thank you for watching or listening to our show. It's through your continued support that we are able to scale this Thing the way we have been. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co. Keep up to date with everything that we are doing, everything we're going to do, and you will find some really interesting information there that will help you with your habits. Anyways, back to the show, guys. Enjoy.
0: Yeah, I would say that's a skill, and I think, uh, I think a lot of that is is developed through overcoming adversity and challenges in the first place. Um, one of our uh, SEAL instructors, the one of the the leads for the overall BUDS program, uh, said, "You know, I, I don't want the superstar athlete who has won every single uh, competition he's ever been in. What I want is kind of the, the scrappy individual who grew up on the streets or grew up uh, kind of overcoming challenges and may have." been fourth fifth sixth place in every competition but it didn't matter what place he was in he still did all the training he still showed up every saturday morning for an early morning run or an early morning swim he put in the work those are the ones you want those are the ones you want you
1: know we've talked about how people leverage trauma as a means to to push themselves and i mean if you You read David Goggin's story. It's a response to trauma. It's all a response to this trauma. How important or not important, but did you see in the Navy a lot of people there who were responding to their own demons and trauma?
0: Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call it all trauma. Uh, you know, some type of challenge, some type of adversity, some type of obstacle. If you've ever read Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the way, that that is what I, I feel a lot of very high performing individuals within special operations, they've they've overcome some type of obstacle to be there. Uh, maybe they grew up in a family that was broken, uh, and, and I don't just, I don't mean married, married or divorced broken. I mean, like just a very rough family to, to grow up in. Maybe they, maybe some of them were homeless. Maybe some of them like were like David Goggins where they were, you know, abused and, and had to overcome that. Um, there's, there's definitely, I, I think having overcome those challenges and I certainly wouldn't wish challenges like that to that level on anyone, but if they are faced with those challenges, they they have a, a level of resilience um, where they, they get through the challenge and then they learn and grow from it. And that's the key. A lot of people will get through a challenge and then face that same challenge and face that same challenge over and over, and never learn from the mistakes that they made, never learn from what put them into that challenge, into that obstacle, into that adversity themselves, and never grow from it. And I think that's uh, that's one of the, the difference makers, is uh, is that mentality, is is over having the ability to overcome the challenge and then learn from it.
1: Yeah. So, how? John, did you start to move and become interested in in mindfulness? When did that take shape within your military career and how? Uh,
0: I had a particular operation that I was uh, a part of, or at least connected to, uh, where we ended up losing a a lot of great guys on the the battlefield. And I ended up having uh, several things that I battled with. One was survivor's guilt. And yeah, a lot of a lot of questioning as to why I was still alive. Those guys were gone. Why those guys who I perceived to be better than I were were gone? And you know, some of them were fathers. Uh, some of them were husbands. And, and you know, all of them were sons. They uh, why they were gone, and I was not. And then there was uh, a level of imposter syndrome that I struggled with uh, because. Hey, I didn't go out on that on that combat operation, did I? Did I belong amongst the 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 ones who did? Um, and then there was uh, later on in in my career, moral injury uh, because I was doing things on on and off the battlefield that again didn't necessarily align with my personal ideals and values. And so that uh, all culminated in in uh, my dealing with my own. Demons, my own challenges, my own obstacles that I kind of had to overcome, and my initial way of overcoming those was through self-medication uh, with alcohol, and then uh, and then later uh, through prescription drugs uh, that were were given to me. And I think they still those prescription drugs still have a time and place, uh, but I was uh, I I felt eventually that they had they had numbed the pain, but they had also numbed any sense of joy or fulfillment. And I eventually went to a doctor and was like, "Look, I'm I'm having some fairly dark thoughts, and I I, I don't know if I want to be here anymore, um, and I don't know if the medication is helping anymore." And he said, "Well." Uh, Let's let's try something different. Let's let's try mindfulness and meditation. And this was uh, probably about 2015 uh, when I first got introduced to uh, mindfulness and meditation. And I I laughed at him at first, and then uh, and he had the patience to sit me down and show me the science behind mindfulness and meditation, why it works. It's not just this woo-woo snake oil. And he started uh, showing me some very high performing individuals that practice it and the benefits that you get from practicing it. And then I, uh, I was sold, so I went back. The, the next morning and try to jump right into an hour long meditation and within about <laughs> 17 seconds uh, I, I was my mind was everywhere but on the meditation uh, and uh, and i came out of that pissed i kind of came out of that very frustrated with myself and it's like uh you know i'm i'm not a i'm not a meditator uh, i can't meditate something's wrong with me or that my mind is just too busy i'm too i'm too high performing for meditation and i went back and i told i told them yeah exactly right uh I laugh now, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I went back to the doc and I was like, hey, that meditation stuff, it may work for others, but it's not working for me. This is what I did. And I, you know, I told them the hour long meditation. He's like, Well, John, as a runner, because I, I was a fairly decent runner at the time and had run a lot, uh, run less these days. But anyhow, um, as a runner, would you ever start up, you know, a, a marathon without having run before? I was like, No, of course not. He's like, Well, if you ever went to the weight room, would you ever get under 300 pounds on the bench press without ever having lifted? And I was like, no, of course not. He's like, well, that's basically what you did yesterday. And he's like, hey, look, I admit I failed. I probably should have told you how to get started. And, and so uh, I got started doing some very short meditations, two and three minute little box break, breathing drills. I mean, nothing super in-depth, just very basic. And I started to see and feel the effects of that. And then, as I did more and more, I started doing multiple times a day. I started to see the overlapping effects. And then, about eight, eight weeks or so into it, maybe two, two months or so, uh, the the effects were lasting. And I was able to do much longer, more in depth meditations and, uh, and have more profound perf- uh, effects personally and professionally, uh, physically and emotionally and mentally. Um, so it was is pretty wild. And then I started to uh, talk more about it. When people came up to me, I, I had people, it was the, the effects were so profound that I had people coming up to me and they're like, what are you taking? What are you on? And uh, at first I was hesitant to tell them that I was meditating because I was a little embarrassed because of the stigma that surrounds meditation. Everybody thinks it's woo woo. Everybody thinks it's for weirdos and hippies. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to bite the bullet. I'm going to start telling people what I'm doing. And uh, I told them that I was meditating. And what I expected was for people's eyes to glaze over, for them to turn around, walk away, and never talk to me again. But more often than not, I got people asking me, oh, well, tell me more about that. Tell me how you got started. And and then I had people coming in and like, hey, would you ever consider guiding a meditation? And I started guiding meditations just for kind of a, a hobby, kind of a side thing for to, to help from friends out. And then I realized that I could do this as a career um, not not so much to make money. I mean, sure, don't get me wrong. I like putting food on the table and providing for my family. So money's nice. Uh, but I, I knew this was another way for me to serve my fellow man, for me to give back to, and when I say man, that's gender neutral, men and women. Um, so uh, now, now that's what I do. I uh, have a, a podcast, my own podcast, "Men Talking Mindfulness," that that I, I talk about mindfulness with a, a, f- a friend of mine and uh, and anything, any aspects of mindfulness. And, uh, and I go out to corporate teams and share it with them. And then I also coach individuals with mindfulness. So yeah, that's how I got into it and, and how I got to where I am today.
1: John, can you, um, dive into some detail around box breathing? Cause I know it seems to be common within your space. What is it? And do you have like a formal practice? Is it like, is it, um, with any flavor or is it just, like, is it a traditional just breathing technique? So, just unpack the how a little bit for the audience.
0: Sure. Yeah. the The box breathing is is called that because you breathe in for some amount of time. So, for this example, let's just say you breathe in for a count of four. So, that's the first edge of the box. You hold for a count of four. So, that's the top of the box. You breathe out for a count of four. So, that's the other edge of the box. And then you hold for a count of four. And that's the bottom of the box. So, if you like graphically can envision this, it looks like a box based on the four uh, ways that you're either breathing in, holding, breathing out or holding again. So it looks like a box. That's why it's called box breathing. And we learn that without calling it meditation in the SEAL teams to control our heart rate, to control our respiratory rate, control uh, basically our, our body's response on the shooting range so that we can shoot better. Uh, Just on a static range. And then later we start to employ that when we start going into the kill house, when we start going to room entry, those types of things so that we can be calmer because that's where you want to be. You don't want to be super jacked up when you are doing something that involves, (laughs) you know, putting rounds down range when you're shooting. Um, So uh, that that's the box breathing. As far as my own personal practice, uh, I I practice mindfulness meditation. I know a lot of people practice transcendental meditation, which is often focused on a mantra. I, I do mindfulness meditation where I focus a lot on my breathing and the actual physical sensations tied to that breathing. So I notice where the air is entering my body I notice the physical sensation associated with that. I notice the expansion of my lungs. I notice how that expansion of my lungs forces my chest and my belly to expand. And then I, the reverse on the out breath. Uh, I, and I try to do that uh, or a body scan or some other mindfulness-based meditation. And I do that twice a day. Ideally, I'm doing that for somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes in the morning. And again, another 15 to 30 minutes in the afternoon. And I've just recently started doing meditation with binaural beats in the evening to kind of put my mind and body at ease as I go to sleep. At one point, I was when I was meditating, I was getting energy from that. And I was actually not able to meditate before I went to sleep. But I've just now started doing the binaural beats as I go to sleep. And that's, that's super helpful.
1: Mm, yeah, because I've, I've read somewhere that if you meditate before sleep, can actually keep you up, right? So I guess it's
0: right yeah. it's
1: understanding your physiology, and I suppose the type of meditation you're doing.
0: Yeah, and experimenting—you know, figuring out what works for you. Because we all are, you know, different strokes for different folks. So figuring out what works for you is is key.
1: Now I want to move to habit creation with uh, meditation. So there are people out there that. whatever reason feel that they can't or they don't have the time or you know it's they're too high performing uh or there's people like me that meditated for a long time and then when the newborns came into my life i've got a four-year-old and an 18-month-old it kind of fell apart however the time's there now again to actually get on it um but i Just choose to do other things whether it be journal or run but i i do see the value i think since i've stopped meditating i don't hold space for people as well i've i've defaulted to my super fast thinking faster than you're talking and reacting before you even finished your sentence and i felt like when i was meditating i actually held space for people better so how can people like myself that did it fell off and people that or just looking to get started like what's some uh you know some stuff we can do to start to create some good habits around actually doing
0: it yeah sure well first off rj i i totally appreciate the uh, the kids coming into the mix and kind of throwing your routine off uh, i've got a four-year-old yeah it's absolutely i've got a four-year-old i've got a two-year-old and i've got a seven-month-old and uh, and, uh, and and my routine uh I call it a routine, but it's honestly it's a it's different every day. and, and I have to adjust. And uh, you know, once I leave the uh, home and go to the office, then that's when my routine begins as far as what the actual routine is. But prior to that, you know i might I might be up at four thirty in the morning uh, so that I can get a run in uh, or so that I can get a meditation in, uh, or it may I, I may be able to sleep a little bit later depending on what the kids are doing. That said, uh, the excuses that you threw out, uh are are common i hear those all the time and i've personally uh use those myself um you know i hate one i don't have enough time uh two you know it's it's against my religion to meditate because i i am uh, i am of this religion but this other religion is where meditation started and um the there's 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 a whole list of of why meditation may not be for someone but I can counter most of them. The one where you don't have enough time. So you may not have a lot of time in your day, but what what does your time look like? Is it quality time? Are you in the flow? Are you feeling like you're in the moment with your friends, with your family, with your colleagues? Just like you said, a lot of the time when you're not meditating, you're not holding space for one. So you may be trying to formulate a response in the middle of a conversation without fully hearing what someone is saying. With with the children, you may may not be fully attentive with them because you're on your phone or because your mind is on what happened earlier in the day or what's going to happen tomorrow. So the time that you have, one, is it quality time? Is it fully present time? And then two, what I've found is, and I've seen data on this, is that you're more productive, more likely to get into those states of flow when you meditate regularly. So if you're more productive and more likely to get into those states of flow, you may knock out in six hours what typically takes you eight hours to do. And so even if even if you're one of those people who's like, I don't care how long hey, I'm gonna work 10 hours today, regardless of how productive I am. You know, maybe maybe you're one of those people and you're like, I still don't have enough time. Well. Because you meditated and in that 10 hours, you, you got 12 hours worth of stuff done. Now you have this, when you do finally come home, you have this sense of accomplishment. You have a better sense of fulfillment and you're happier. And when you get home, you're more likely to put this thing aside and focus on your family. If you have a family living at home, or maybe, maybe you're by yourself and you're more focused on your hobbies and the things that give you joy and happiness. So that's the, that's my argument for time. As far as hey, it's not in, it's it's against my religion because this other religion teaches it. That's like saying kindness is you know exclusive to re- religion X, Y, or Z. It's not, um, and and I feel meditation can help your religious beliefs and your religious practices if you have them, um, because maybe whatever book it is that you read from. Maybe that's what you believe is your higher power talking to you, and you believe that prayer is you being able to talk to your higher, higher power. Well, meditation settles your body, your mind, and your nervous system so that you can be in a state that you can receive those messages that you're reading, and two, so that you can be in the right mind state to say those messages to your higher being. So I, I think that they are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to, if you, if you meditate, that doesn't mean you can't be religious. And if you are religious, that doesn't mean you can't meditate. Um, so that's, that's my argument for that. And then my, my last one is when people say, well, my mind is too busy. I'm too high performing. Like I said earlier in the show, uh, to, I'm just one of those people who just can't meditate. Well, start small start easy and don't beat yourself up when your mind does start to go to your to-do list or tomorrow just notice that it has happened and then come back to the anchor whether that is a mantra whether that's your breath whether that's a body scan when you do that over and over and over that's when you start to develop these new neural pathways in your mind and you actually become better at meditating and as you become better at meditating you live more mindfully and that's they they complement one another mindful living mindfully and meditating, they complement one another. So yeah, that's what I would say to uh, those who uh, say those. And I will also tell you, RJ, as far as having the the little ones, um, I remember when I when when we had our first little one, um, you know, I I had been meditating for a while. And then I let the I let the fatherhood kind of get in the way. um, And waking up early in the morning was, you know, through my routine out the window. I was like, okay, meditation is going out right off the bat. I'll come back to it later. And for the first four or five months that I had my my little girl, I would wake up in the middle of the night when it was my turn to feed. And one, I'd be agitated at my little girl, which is ridiculous, that mindset to be agitated at my little girl for for needing to eat in the middle of the night. And then two, I would go get a bottle. And I would give her the bottle and my mind would be on work the next day, or my mind would be on what I had screwed up the day before. And then I was like, Hey, you know what? I've learned meditation. I've learned mindfulness. I need to get back into it. I started getting back into it. And then I would wake up in the middle of the night, not be agitated because my little girl is doing what she's supposed to be doing, letting us know that she's hungry. And then two, I'd give her the bottle and I'd be focused on her and this beautiful miracle that was there in front of me. And I would enjoy that that opportunity, You know, being able to get to do that, get to feed my baby girl in the middle of the night. And where before I had gone back to bed, now I had kind of agitated my mind thinking about tomorrow or thinking about yesterday. And I would go back and lay in my bed and just stew on that and not fall back asleep. Now I would go back to bed after feeding her and being in the moment, being present with her, and I would be able to go back to sleep which allowed me to perform better the next day. So it's it's counterintuitive, but it ultimately sets you up to be better for everyone around and to be better for yourself.
1: Yeah, you've, uh, this conversation, I don't like to use the word inspired, but I think talking to you definitely recommitted me to the process. I mean, I wake up early anyhow. I get into the office really early so I can meditate in my office. I'm here generally 6 a.m., So, you know, I, I do run, I do journal in the morning and, you know, some people said to me like, well, running is like a meditation, but it isn't in a way because you don't have to sit with yourself, right? Like when, when you're running, you could kind of let your mind drift. And to me, that's not the same as, is, is, is actually being with myself without you know what I mean? You, there's a difference there, and I
0: think absolutely. I think the the running the running can be mindfulness. Uh, again, that's where the difference between meditation and mindfulness is. I mean, like you can eat a meal mindfully and enjoy the colors that are on your plate, enjoy the smell of the food, enjoy the actual taste of the food. That's that's mindfulness, and I think that a lot of people when they journal, they're being mindful, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. As as a matter of fact, I highly encourage anything that's going to Bring mindfulness into your life, you're gonna be more mindful. But meditation is a formal practice. That's when you set aside the time to focus on kind of the introspective work and, and nothing else. Uh, you're not focused on the pain that you're maybe experiencing when you're running, or you're not focused on the, the the scenery that's that's around. You're doing that internal work and it's formally set aside to do nothing but that. And they they support one another. Again, they complement one another. As you meditate, you become more mindful. As you are more mindful, your meditation is going to get better. But yeah, I don't I don't subscribe to the uh, the saying that you know running or working out is my meditation. They're they're not the same.
1: They're not the same. And I think there's something in committing time to it. There's an ownership. There's a buy-in process that when you set time aside for something, you're not trying to kill two birds with one stone. That which right. is a hack. Right right and you know sneaky it's like well no you're not and i get that so i think we'll bring it home john really really appreciate you appreciate the time kind of this gentle warrior i get this vibe from you that is you know we're not in in in, with each other but i get the vibe and i really appreciate you mate so for our audience that want to find you john learn more about the show what you do where do they find you man
0: Yeah, the easiest thing is uh, just johnmccaskill.com forward slash links. And that'll take you to all my social media. That'll take you to what I do uh, as far as keynote speaking and teaching mindfulness. And that'll take you to the Men Talking Mindfulness podcast as well.
1: Thanks, John.
0: My pleasure, RJ. Thanks for having me.